Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Trump Scorecard. I'm your host, Jesse Burney, and every week I keep track of the worst and weirdest that Donald Trump presidency has to offer. Why do I do it? Because this is not normal, and we need to remember that. Trump is two weeks into his presidency, and we already have way, way too much to cover. So let's get started. In a week where Donald Trump nominated a justice to the Supreme Court, nearly started a war with three countries, two of them allies, and seemed to think that Frederick Douglass is still alive, he managed to dominate the news with an entirely different story. I'm speaking, obviously, about Trump's Muslim ban, and let's not kid ourselves, that's exactly what it is. The thing about this story is there is so much to cover. There are so many angles. So we're going to spend a big chunk of the podcast this week on it. First, I want to talk about why it is such an important story. I wrote about this last weekend in Rolling Stone when the ban first went to an effect and sent real shockwaves across the country, launching a new wave of protests. Because it is a shocking story, right? It's shocking to our sensibilities, and it is shocking to our idea of what America is supposed to be. There are a lot of ways to think about America. You can think of it as the land, or the 319 million citizens who live on that land. You can think of it as our history, uh, our founding documents and our laws, or our economic might, or our military might. But when I think about America like at its core, I think of America as our progress. We are a country that went from a place where human beings owned other human beings to one that elected a black man president. Look, we are far from perfect. There is so, so much left to do. There is a huge amount of inequality. There is racism, sexism, bigotry in all its forms. But at its best, that's what America is. The progress toward more justice, more fairness, more freedom, more inclusion. And President Trump's order is the opposite of all of those values. It moves America backwards. It did a few things. It immediately barred entry for all refugees for 120 days. Syrian refugees, it barred indefinitely. Refugees. These are people fleeing war, fleeing oppression, literally trying to save their lives and their family lives. He also banned nationals from seven majority Muslim countries, it's Iraq, Iran, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, and Sudan, from coming to the United States. This, this one lasts for 90 days. And it applies to students, tourists, you know, kids who need surgery, even legal permanent residents, that's green card holders. Trump shut the door on them, and he shut it on them fast. Now, you know, of course, they've denied it's a Muslim ban because it doesn't mention the word Muslim in the order. But listen to the Washington Post story about the signing from January 27th. We don't want them here, Trump said of terrorists in a signing ceremony at the Pentagon. We only want to admit those into our country who will support our country and love deeply our country. In an interview with the Christian Broadcasting Network earlier Friday, Trump was asked whether he would prioritize persecuted Christians in the Middle East for admissions of refugees, and he replied, yes. We don't want them here. Let me tell you something. That is a message that will be heard loud and clear across the Islamic world. Terrorists will hear that message, and they will make sure every last one of their recruits hears it too. That's the exact same messages that groups such as ISIS are talking about. Um, they they want to tell the world, hey, look, we told you that the West hates us. We told you that the West hates Islam. 
And that's how, that's their main recruiting mechanism. That's Taif Johnny. He's a policy coordinator at the People for the American Way Foundation here in D.C., and he's also an Iraqi refugee. He understands exactly how powerful this message will be as a recruiting tool for terrorists. I used to work in the past with a, a humanitarian aid organization to deliver aid to internally displaced people in Iraq, and we used to you know, read reports about recruiting me- mechanisms and the schools ISIS have uh, schools in Iraq and Syria to recruit children. And those are the exact things that they tell them. Like, hey, look, uh, I mean, easily right now they can point out that the uh, president, the new president of the U.S. and say, look, that's the president of the most powerful country in the world, and that's what he's saying about you and your families and your friends. How do you feel about it? In 2006, Taif was 15 years old and living in Baghdad where he grew up. He's a Mandean, a member of a minority religious sect in Iraq, and violence against the sect was getting worse and worse during the war. And then his father was kidnapped. He hasn't seen his father since. He fled with other members of his family to Syria and then obtained a scholarship to come to the United States. He eventually was granted asylum and obtained a green card and has made his life here in the United States. I asked him whether he was willing to travel out of the country now that the ban is in place. No, absolutely not. I mean, uh, fortunately for me, I um, was able to go and visit my mom and sister in Australia um, on Christmas right after, you know, I received my green card and um, I was able to secure the visa to go there. Uh, But my... Prior to leaving the U.S., my lawyer called me and she said, I have to make sure you come back to the U.S. before Inauguration Day. And I, in a way, I understood why, but at the same time, I didn't want to understand why she was saying that just because, I, you know, I spent eight years of my life in this country trying to get my green card and finally have a sense of stability. And now I'm having my immigration lawyer telling me to come back before we're having a new administration because things are going to be different and you might not be able to come back here. So I literally came back, I think, a day or two before inauguration day. And I think if I didn't uh, come back in time, um, again, I would not be talking to you right now. Taif says his situation is a lot better than other refugees. After all, he's here. And even if he doesn't feel like he can go visit his family again anytime soon, he says others are facing much, much worse. When you talk about Iraqi and Syrian refugees, that's a completely different ballgame just because what these people go through and what they face and the conditions that force them to flee their homes is something that really can't be put into words or... um, you can't even visualize it. And I was one of them. I I lived through the war and I lived through a sectarian civil war and um, whatever happened to me and my family is really tragic and it's happening to millions of other people um, in these two countries and many other conflict regions around the world. So to slam the doors that in the faces of all these people and to tell them that you're all threats and you're all basically not good people just because of what religion they practice or what region they come from. It's just completely discriminatory and it felt like 
it's the exact same reason why I fled Iraq. So it's just coming back to that same thing again. And didn't, it didn't sit right, and it still doesn't. Of course, Trump's justification for his Muslim ban is to protect us from terrorism. He claims he's going to implement extreme vetting. Extreme vetting. But as Taif describes, the vetting is already pretty extreme. Right. So we, uh, yeah, so that took, uh, I applied for a student visa, and the whole process took for more than a year and a half for it to process. And so that was just for me to enter the U.S. as a student then. Uh, but I also applied for asylum after I um, finished school because I wasn't going to go back to Iraq, you know. Um, and my asylum, it took two years and then another year until I got my green card. If you're keeping track, that's four and a half years to go from first applying for a student visa to getting a green card. And they want to know everything about you. There's a lot of forms um, that you have to fill out, and um, you you fill out everything that's requested and all the supportive documents. I mean, they ask every single thing uh, from your birth certificate to even Iraqi national IDs and passports and everything. I mean, they and the questions that they ask on these forms. Um, are extremely tedious and rigorous. I mean, they ask literally everything, and they know every, They want to know everything about you. They ask you about your your associations, friends, family members, addresses of family members, um, whether or not you are affiliated with like certain groups. Um, they ask why are you applying. They you have to write your entire story. You have to provide um, um, kind of like proof to your story and what you're saying in your story is true. And and um, I cannot remember the exact questions, but it was you know, at least 25 pages kind of form. That's some pretty extreme vetting. Trump has never specified what it is he wants to know about refugees that we don't already know or how he's going to get that information. And you know what? He probably never will. That's the perfect excuse to keep extending the ban. Those 90 and 120 day limits, just wait for them to get extended and extended and extended as they keep trying to figure out exactly how to put the extreme vetting in place. Meanwhile, the suffering will go on. Taif suggested that Americans need to learn about what these people are going through. We need to educate the American public that that doesn't understand, again, the humanitarian conditions and the situation of those refugees and those immigrants, whether they're from Iraq or Syria or other parts of the world. Uh, I feel lack of knowledge about these regions and those people is playing a, a really critical role in how people think and make their judgments right now in the U.S. So I feel like a lot of work. You know, our responsibility is to educate these people and to let them know that a lot of these refugees and immigrants in the U.S. feel like this is their home and this is their uh, the, the place where they can get their identity back. Uh, very similarly to me, um, this is my, this is my home and this is my country. And though I'm not a citizen yet, I will 
do whatever it takes for me to protect the American values that I um, dearly cherish. America is supposed to be a welcoming place. We're supposed to open our arms to, and please forgive me for the cliche, you're tired, you're poor, you're huddled masses yearning to breathe free. An America that closes its doors on people like Taif isn't America. Like I said in the beginning of the podcast, there are a lot of angles to this story. The ban wasn't just hideously immoral. It was also very, very poorly executed. Remember, the White House essentially crafted the Muslim ban in secret. They didn't get any input from the agencies that should have input into a process like this, like the State Department or the Department of Homeland Security. Normally, a change this big would involve months of collaboration and consideration from a wide variety of experts. But this White House did it mostly on its own. They did get some input from friendly staffers on Capitol Hill, but, and this is honestly bizarre, they made them sign a non-disclosure agreement. That means the staffers couldn't tell their bosses, your elected representatives, what they were working on. So the administration started off by setting a tone of secrecy and mistrust with Congress. When Trump signed the executive order, remember, he said, we don't want them here. He threw the government into chaos. No one was prepared, and no one, it seemed, even knew what it meant. Customs and Border Patrol, the agency responsible for enforcing the ban, was clueless. Here's what the New York Times reported on January 29th, and uh, the links to all the stories I reference in the podcast are available on the website. That's thetrumpscorecard.org. One customs officer, who declined to be quoted by name, said he was given a limited briefing about what to do as he went to his post Saturday morning. But even managers seemed unclear. People at the agencies were blindsided, he said, and are still trying to figure things out, even as people are being stopped from coming into the United States. Quote, if the secretary doesn't know anything, how could we possibly know anything at this level, the officer said. So, the people in charge of enforcing the ban literally did not know what they were doing. And the results of this were horrific. Just one example, uh, KPTV reported on February 1st that a four-month-old girl named Fatima was supposed to come to the United States for heart surgery. And I quote, She and her family were not able to finish their trip because of President Trump's executive order on immigration. Fatima and her family do not have permission to come into the United States, even though they filled out the paperwork for tourist visas for the surgery, and even though her grandparents and uncle are American citizens. She needs the surgery as soon as possible, said Sam Tagizada, Fatima's uncle, a four-month-old baby with a heart condition. These are the terrorists Donald Trump is trying to stop from coming into the United States. So, huge protests erupted in airports across the country, and virtually no one knew what was going on. And then uh, the lawsuit started, and judges, federal judges, started issuing stays. They said that people who had arrived with valid visas should be allowed to stay in the country. They said that those detainees should have access to lawyers. But here's where it gets really, really bad. Like, constitutional crisis bad. This is from the Huffington Post on January 29th. The U.S. government must, quote, permit lawyers access to all legal permanent residents being detained at Dulles International Airport, a federal judge in Virginia ordered late Saturday. But U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents at this airport outside Washington, D.C. are defying the judge's order, 
blocking attorneys from talking to the lawful permanent residents CBP is detaining here. Think about that for a moment. A federal law enforcement agency is ignoring an order from a federal court. If the executive branch ignores orders from the judicial branch, we live in a literal tyranny. That's it. That's the line between a republic and a dictatorship. If the president and the agencies he runs are not accountable to the law, there is no more America. I know that sounds like hyperbole, but we're talking about the president doing whatever he wants with absolute impunity. And Trump made it clear that he won't stand for anybody defying him on this and likely on any other issue. So uh, you know about the attorney general, right? The acting attorney general, Sally Yates, who was an Obama administration holdover, wrote a letter saying that she would direct the DOJ, the, the Department of Justice, not to enforce the ban. Here's what she wrote. My responsibility is to ensure that the position of the Department of Justice is not only legally defensible, but is informed by our best view of what the law is after consideration of all the facts. In addition, I am responsible for ensuring that the positions we take in court remain consistent with this institution's solemn obligation to always seek justice and stand for what is right. At present, I am not convinced that the defense of the executive order is consistent with these responsibilities, nor am I convinced that the executive order is lawful. And then Donald Trump fired her, which is not the action of a man who respects dissenting opinion. It is not a man who respects or even understands the law, and that is a terrifying person to have as our president. And he's not done, by the way. Washington Post reported on January 31st, the Trump administration is considering a plan to weed out would-be immigrants who are likely to require public assistance, as well as to deport, when possible, immigrants already living in the United States who depend on taxpayer help, according to a draft executive order obtained by the Washington Post. A second draft order under consideration calls for a substantial shakeup in the system through which the United States administers immigrant and non-immigrant visas, with the aim of tightly controlling who enters the country and who can enter the workforce and reducing the social services burden on U.S. taxpayers. Let's be really clear about this. There is this persistent, ugly myth that immigrants are a drain on our economy and on our social safety net, and they get all these free benefits and commit a huge amount of crime. The truth is that immigrants, including, by the way, undocumented immigrants, pay more in taxes than they use in services. They open more businesses and commit fewer crimes than the general population. We should welcome them, not only because it's morally right, but because it benefits us. One more thing about this ban. Sean Spicer said the following in his January 30th press briefing. We condemn this attack in the strongest possible terms. It's a terrible reminder of why we must remain vigilant and why the president is taking steps to be proactive rather than reactive when it comes to our nation's safety and security. So what he did there was he used an attack on a mosque in Quebec by a white supremacist who murdered Muslims as justification for Donald Trump's Muslim ban. It really doesn't get any more disgusting than that. Um, finally, I said in the first podcast that I want to use the first segment to give you an example of somewhere where you can take action. And I want to do that here too. And the action I'd like you to take this week, if you can, is to give some money. Uh, not to me. 
Um, one good example is the ACLU, uh, who, who is fighting these bans. They have raised a ton of money online. They usually raise three to four million online in a year. They've raised like 25 million since this ban went into effect. They're going to keep doing great work. You could give to them. Uh, I personally, my, my choice to give this week was to the International Rescue Committee, which does some amazing work actually helping refugees like those who are currently banned from our country. So, uh, I will put a link to uh, them on the website, so check it out, thetrumpscorecard.org. The Muslim ban was clearly the worst thing Trump did this week, but it wasn't the only news on the executive order front. Trump issued this bizarre and kind of meaningless order that requires that for any new regulation to go into effect, the government must eliminate two other regulations. This is one of those stories that shows how thoughtless deregulation advocates can be. You know, there are definitely some regulations we could do away with. But the idea that a regulation is some discrete unit that measures evil government interference is just absurd. I used to run my own business, and yes, paying taxes and dealing with paperwork could be a pain in the ass, and we could simplify that. But I also like being able to drink the water that comes out of my tap. Some regulations are good. And if you want to pass Regulation A and need to get rid of Regulations B and C, couldn't you just write a new regulation that does A, B, and C? It doesn't make any sense. Why not instead do a thorough review of regulations, agency by agency, and see what actually works and what doesn't? Not that I trust Donald Trump to do that. Uh, he also floated two executive orders to curtail LGBT rights. The first would have reversed an Obama order that protected federal workers from discrimination. And after an outcry, the White House said it would keep that order. And some actually reported this as like a great gift to the LGBT community, just letting them have rights they already won. But there's a second order still out there that would be a huge step backwards. Uh, this is from The Nation on February 2nd. The draft order seeks to create wholesale exemptions for people and organizations who claim religious or moral objections to same-sex marriage, premarital sex, abortion, and trans identity, and it seeks to curtail women's access to contraception and abortion through the Affordable Care Act. Conservatives love to pretend these are issues of religious freedom. But here's the thing. Your religion doesn't give you the right to discriminate against others. It gives you the right not to marry someone of the same gender if you think that's bad. It gives you the right not to take the pill or have an abortion. But it doesn't give you the right to impose your beliefs on others or to refuse service to other people based on who they are. If you don't want to bake cakes for gay weddings, become a priest instead of a baker. Your cakes probably suck anyway. So this one isn't an executive order, but the White House issued a proclamation for Holocaust Remembrance Day, which sounds like a great idea, right? Only they didn't mention Jews at all. They said it was an inclusive statement, but leaving Jews out of mentions of the Holocaust is a classic strategy of Holocaust deniers. In any other administration, this could be just an oversight. But in this one, with Steve Bannon, no especially since the State Department wrote a statement that did include Jews, but the White House rejected it. That's a message Jews heard loud and clear. All right, let's do some foreign policy because, well, Donald Trump can't. He maybe kind of almost started three wars this week. It was a busy week. First, he threatened to invade Mexico. He really, 
really doesn't seem to like Mexico. He was talking to the president, Enrique Peña Nieto, and he said that he might send our military to take care of, and I quote, bad hombres. You might remember that phrase from the debates. And yes, it is a racist phrase. Uh, next up is Iran, where National Security Advisor and actual conspiracy theory crackpot General Michael Flynn issued a sternly worded letter that we were putting the country on notice, which sounds a lot like what I say to my kids when I want them to listen to me, but I can't think of any consequences to threaten them with. It is just silly. Uh, and last up is Australia. I, I don't know what to say about the call Donald Trump had with Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. I don't know if you saw this, but he basically berated him for 25 minutes for no reason and then hung up in the middle of what was supposed to be an hour-long call, which sounds a lot like my kids when they don't want to listen to me. I don't know. Maybe he missed his nap or something that day. Uh, don't forget, I have links to all these stories on the website, thetrumpscorecard.org. So check those out. Uh, and while we're on the subject of the na of national security, Steve Bannon was given a seat on the National Security Council's Principles Committee, which Slate called a, an assault on common sense and tradition and also a violation of federal law. In the same order where Trump put a bloated racist who has said he wants to destroy America on the National Security Council, he also took the director of national intelligence and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff off the Principles Committee. Because why would you want them to have a say in matters of national security? And, you know, Trump is about to run headlong into some real problems with the military. He ordered his first major action this week, a raid against an al-Qaeda base in Yemen, and it was a disaster. One Navy SEAL died, as did an eight-year-old girl who is also an American citizen. Look, I am not a military guy, and I do not have the expertise to criticize raids like this. I don't. And they are always unpredictable. But here's what Reuters reported on February 2nd. U.S. military officials told Reuters that Trump approved his first covert counterterrorism operation without sufficient intelligence, ground support, or adequate backup preparations. As a result, three officials said the attacking SEAL team found itself dropping onto a reinforced Al-Qaeda base defended by landmines, snipers, and a larger-than-expected contingent of heavily armed Islamic extremists. That's three separate officials leaking to a news organization that the president didn't put in the work to plan this operation. And a Navy SEAL and an American girl died. Trump called this operation a success. All right, one last foreign policy note. The Treasury Department has begun to loosen sanctions on Russia because, of course, it has. Let's do some quick hits and run through some of the other horrible stuff Trump did this week. This is from Politico on January 26th. The Trump administration has pulled the plug on all Obamacare outreach and advertising in the crucial final days of the 2017 enrollment season, according to sources at Health and Human Services and on Capitol Hill. Even ads that had already been placed and paid for have been pulled. These ads countered the exact same myths about the Affordable Care Act that Trump spread during the campaign. He pulled ads the government had already paid for just so fewer people would sign up to get health insurance. That's gross. Okay, on January 30th, The Independent reported, A former climate change advisor to Donald Trump has said the U.S. president will pull America out of the landmark Paris Agreement, and an executive order on the issue could come within days. So, 
the earth is completely screwed. We knew that the day we elected a climate change denier. And speaking of climate change deniers, this is from McClatchy on January 30th. President Donald Trump is taking aim at one of the federal government's main agencies for climate change research, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and NOAA employees are girding for drastic changes in how they conduct science and report it to the public. Trump has appointed a leading denier of climate change, Kenneth Hapala of the Heartland Institute, that's a conservative think tank, to serve on the administration team handling appointments for the U.S. Department of Commerce, the federal agency that oversees NOAA. We're maybe like a month away from this administration announcing that cars are required to pump out 10 times more carbon dioxide than they do now. Okay, and other terrible appointment news, here's CNN on February 2nd. Evangelical leader Jerry Falwell Jr., president of Liberty University, will lead an education task force put together by President Donald Trump, a spokesman for the university told CNN Thursday. It goes on. Falwell has been particularly interested in curbing rules that require schools to investigate campus sexual assault under Title IX, a federal law that bans discrimination in education. That's right. They want to deregulate rape on college campuses. I don't have anything more to say about that. Let's end another horrific week on a better note. First, at an event to launch Black History Month, Trump gave just a weird rambling speech that's, you know, at this point, pretty typical for him. But the best moment was when Trump made it perfectly clear he had never heard of Frederick Douglass, has no idea who he is or what he's done, and possibly thinks he's still alive. Frederick Douglass is an example of somebody who's done an amazing job and is being recognized more and more, I notice. Being recognized more and more, I noticed. That is some genuine gold from Donald J. Trump. And this last clip, well, I'd like you to listen. And if you haven't heard it yet, I want you to guess the event where he said it. But we had tremendous success on The Apprentice. And when I ran for president, I had to leave the show. That's when I knew for sure I was doing it. And they hired a big, big movie star, Arnold Schwarzenegger, to take my place. And we know how that turned out. The ratings went right down the tubes. It's been a total disaster. And Mark will never, ever bet against Trump again. And I want to just pray for Arnold, if we can, for those ratings, okay? <laughs> Was it the White House Correspondents' Dinner where presidents make jokes? Was it a Comedy Central roast of Arnold Schwarzenegger? Nope. That was the National Prayer Breakfast which is an entirely appropriate event to deliver a self-aggrandizing monologue about television ratings, which is every event if you're Donald Trump. Folks, that brings us to the end of another terrible week living under the Donald Trump presidency. I want to thank Taif Johnny for sharing his story and his insight. The podcast should now be available on all major podcast apps, so please subscribe and let me know if you can't find it. You can contact me via email at thetrumpscorecard at gmail.com or on Twitter at Jesse Burney. I'd also love any suggestions or tips you have for the podcast. I'm going to get a new mic this week, so hopefully the sound will be much better the next time around. The Trump Scorecard is hosted, written, edited, and produced by me, Jesse Burney. Our music is from bensounds.com. Thank you for listening, and remember, this is not normal.